Yo, what is going on, everybody? Isaac Mashman here, and welcome back to another episode of Chase the Vision with Isaac Mashman, the podcast that is all about helping you become a more capable individual and better chase after your vision through sharing my experiences and knowledge in a variety of different things. And now in a series of interviews, sharing the knowledge and experiences of the people and the guests that I bring on. And today, I'm honored to have Kenny Herzog, who is the digital content director at Entrepreneur Media, um, which is also Entrepreneur Magazine. And, you know, he has this entire roster of different things that he's done, uh, a career spanning literally 20 years, um, a career <laughs> longer than I've been alive, which is kind of crazy to think, and a career wow. that's been consistent. Um, and so I'm, I'm super, super honored to have him on. Kenny, what are you, you know, what's going on, man? How are you doing? I'm good. That was quite an introduction. Um, I don't know that I've, anyone's been honored uh, to, to have me. So um, this is I'm good. I'm good. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's I, as you know, I, I asked if we could initially delay the uh, the scheduled meeting time by ten minutes because I was just sewing up a bunch of different things. I'm in the midst of uh, just being busy at my day job and having some stuff on the side um, that's sort of volunteer driven in, in uh, excuse me in relationship to the vaccine rollout. And I've got two little kids and a, and a wife and a mortgage and all that stuff. So right. just just keeping the plate spinning. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, I actually, I, I saw that you're, you're volunteering for, it's called Volunteer New York, and you're helping with, like, bringing people on as, as writers to, like, bring awareness. That's one charity and philanthropic, you know, thing that you have going on, and then you're also, you know, volunteering a lot with the vaccine rollout and stuff like that. I, I was looking through some of your socials and things, and, and you seem to be very super, super, like, outspoken and passionate about that subject. Uh, yeah, I try to be, I try to be outspoken. Um, I okay. have something to say and I have, you know, my little platform and I want everyone to be as, as protected from the mm -hmm. continued ravages of this virus as possible. And for us collectively to get ourselves back up on our feet and, um, and functioning again as a, as a country and as a culture and as a society. So right. I'm doing everything I can on my local level to, uh, help get shots in arms and persuade people who are reluctant to get shots in arms. It's, it's called mm -hmm. specifically, I'm co-chairing an effort called uh, hashtag Vax Up Westchester. So just Vax Up Westchester. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was an extension of an effort called COVID Angels. That was, that's both of which are under the auspices of a local township and a town supervisor near me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I might, I might want to have a conversation with you off, you know, off camera and off the podcast talking about that because you know, you, you read things and you don't know what's true, what's accurate. And uh, that's something that I've been a little bit reluctant about, not because I, I don't have faith in the government or faith in, you know, the, the companies behind it, but it's just like, you know, the long-term effects of things. So I, I don't know, you know, that, that's a thing where it's like, there's so many different things that we talk about, but to, to move on, I think that we're, you know, consumed by, you know, the virus over the past year. Let's talk about some things that are a little bit more cheerful. And um, I guess you could probably say a little bit more narcissistic, you know, pertaining to, to just yourself. But uh, yeah, brother, I mean, going to your career, you've written for The Ringer, Entrepreneur, ESPN, Rolling Stone, Fast Company, and this entire list of just different places. And uh, part of having a platform is, you know, being able to, to contribute and write things that you're interested about and that, that sort of thing. And obviously you're using that now with, you know, how passionate you are about the vaccine and, and you know, helping people in that regard. Um, how did you get started in the entire aspect of being a journalist and being a writer and being somebody who, you know, is, is writing for a living, which is pretty cool. 
Uh, well, thanks. I mean, you know, it's not the most lucrative thing in the world, but it has it has its place <laughs> in our world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say the real deep background is sort of just, you know, knowing early on in my life that I was going to be wanting to write. And then that evolved out of sort of the like pubescent state of wanting to be writing poetry and mm. wooing ladies with my stanzas about whatever to being in college up, uh, in upstate New York and Albany and discovering I had a knack for applying my literary skills to matters of actual real pragmatic, you know, pragmatic purpose or necessity. So journalism became the calling and I just jumped right in. I worked for a, a trade paper out of college and then I worked for an alternative weekly paper and then I worked for different magazines and then mm -hmm. things went digital and I've been migrating from one sort of digital thing to the next and a lot of freelancing, you know, interspersed with that. Um, and now I've been with Entrepreneur for, yeah, for, you know, I guess it'll be going on a year and a half soon or so. That's really cool. How did you land that gig? Because entrepreneur and, and you know, especially the business and entrepreneur community is like the, the Hail Mary, like the, the one magazine that a lot of people dream to be working with or get an article written about or that sort of thing. But how did you land that as, you know, a, a job and as a career path? Well, I can't say I ever, you know, was dreaming about specifically, you know, entrepreneur, mm -hmm. but I have, obviously I've, <clears throat> excuse me, entrepreneur magazine specifically has been kind of a mainstay, you know, on newsstands since, uh, I mean, for most, of, for most of my life, actually, probably. And at the time that I got the job, I'd been freelance editing for them. I applied, <clears throat> excuse me, for a full-time job a few years ago. And it just, the timing wasn't right, but then I started doing some freelance stuff. And then that just kind of naturally grew mm -hmm. to me filling a need for them in a full-time role, which was um, something that happened to start literally a week before everything shut down in New York for the pandemic. So mm -hmm. I had all of two days to get acquainted with my coworkers in person. And since then they've been basically just little Brady Bunch boxes in my, in my screen. Right. Okay. That that's that's really really interesting. And you're you're based out of New York, right? What part of New York? Yeah, I'm a I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I currently live in Westchester County, just north of the city. So I live kind of on the Hudson River. You can see you know the uh, the Palisades mm -hmm. uh, mountains across the way. And then uh, if you're on a very clear day, if you're on the riverfront by me, you can actually see the Manhattan skyline. So that's how close I am. Okay. Now I've, I've been in New York city once and I was only there for, you know, about four hours. I didn't really see much of the city, but just the energy there was really cool. And, um, I actually went to, to a youth camp when I was super young. Um, and I, I have never talked about this before and it was in upstate New York. I think it was Shroom Lake or something, something like that. It, like it was over, like it was, it was pretty high up. And a lot of people, whenever they think of New York, they only think about New York city, but they fail to realize like the actual state is really, really beautiful. So how was it growing up in New York? Um, you know, obviously it's a little bit more expensive to live there. Um, you know, different viewpoints, like, tell me about your background, like your family growing up, um, how that influenced you, you know, growing up into, you know, the career path you were choosing. Yeah. Um, my family, we're, we're all, uh, we're all strange. They would know. So now that's not true. So <laughs> I was actually watching an entree into this might be that I was watching Sons of Sam, the new docuseries on Netflix about the idea that the son of Sam wasn't the only killer he wasn't the lone 44 caliber killer back during back in 77 in new york and there was a bit where they were talking about one of his last victims was killed in bayside queens and it was in the summer of 77 and i'm thinking oh my god it's so crazy because in the summer of 77 my parents and my then infant sister 
you know, were living in Bayside and that that was going on around it. And we were, and throughout the documentary, there were people of such a, a certain stock that were, that were constantly, uh, there was a lot of archival footage of them. They just talked in a way that was like home to me in a way that New Yorkers don't even really talk anymore. Mm -hmm. So I, that's a long way of saying um, nothing, nothing too distinctive about my growing up. I mean, I, we were basically just like a middle-class Queens family that moved to Long Island when I was in fourth grade and then became a little more upwardly mobile, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. in Long on being on Long Island. And then I had a very standard, I mean, look, I could get into the weeds of like, of know, course, these were all the dynamics and dramas and, you know, and I, you know, I had parents that divorced and then my mom got remarried and there's all those sorts of things, but mm -hmm. just the broad strokes of it. Yeah. And then I had a, I had a, almost a sort of stereotypical suburban teen existence that I was very, very much trying to chafe up against as, uh, to the extent that I could. So I'd spend a lot of time in the city seeing bands or buying records or just trying to find little little small bits of trouble and mm -hmm. uh, very engaged in sort of the, the punk rock community on, this, on Long Island and in the city in my teen years. And that kind of started to kind of um, inspire my writing and to go in a slightly different, maybe more kind of conscientious direction that perhaps planted the seeds of wanting to be in journalism. I just couldn't pinpointed at that time. So that's, you know, we're, yeah, we are, we are one of many, many, many families that were part of the, um, for better or worse, the sort of like Jewish diaspora from the city out to Long Island over the course of the mid to late 20th century. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I found your website from like 2011. And, and the way that it was written, it was, it was hilarious. It, it, it was your website. And I looked at the copyright, and it looked like it hasn't been edited in a few years. And mm. I, was, I was reading the copy, and you're just like, yeah, I'm trying to think of the, the title that you had. It was like editor, journalist, and Jew. And that's literally what you put down. And I was like, this is going to be really fun. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to like this dude. Um, how was that growing up, though? Like, speaking about religion, is that something that's like, has always been close to your heart or more of like a distant thing that's had its influences? Or how is that like when it comes to work and just, you know, life? Well, it's, I mean, it is a good question because it kind of informs a lot. I'm, my, I'm not a practicing Jew. I'm not like, I'm not observant. Jew, you'll hear this a lot from Jews of my generation and younger. We are we are devout in our. Um, oh, that's my landline. You still have I, one of those? I do, I do. That's uh, actually you get every uh, Jewish baby born between 1979 and, and today gets a free landline <laughs> with their. Um, let me, well, I, let I don't. Me... I don't edit my podcast like this, so this is going to be great to leave in. It's a good. I yeah. Oh, I hope they hang up because my voicemail on that thing is broken. So unless they really want to reach me that badly. Well, it's going that. to be some comical, like, you've reached Kenny Herzog, <laughs> defender of some, something super nerdy. That'd be good. So going... Uh, so, so, so just going back to what we were saying, if it doesn't stop in one ring, I'm going to go get it. Guys, this is, this is comical relief. I love it. I love it. I always say raw and unfiltered, so... It was, it was, it was spam. So back to what we were saying, um, you know, my, my, my parents on my father's side are Holocaust survivors and oh, wow. you know, we're, we're in it. I mean, you know, Auschwitz, the whole deal. So I don't mean to be that flip about it. It's, it's obviously a whole thing. Um, and my, my, my mother's side of my family, and then eventually my stepfather's family, all very um, endearingly rich in just their New York Jewiness <laughs> and, and some more observant 
than others, but it was always made, it was always impressed upon me that it was important just to at least be steeped in the heritage. And right. it is. And I, and I definitely share some of that with my boys, but uh, my sons, but in my work, it's always animated me. I've always looked at things from a kind of uh, the perspective of the marginalized or the victimized or the underrepresented mm. because of my background. And, you know, even as recently as a couple of years ago, I wrote a big wrestling story for Tablet Magazine about um, the unfortunate trope of sort of anti-Semitic Nazi characters in wrestling and and people mm. with actual anti-Semitic attitudes in the wrestling industry. And, you know, and my, um, I'm the first person at my job now to say, if, if somebody were to say, like, let's, you know, let's be very hagiographic about Henry Ford, I would be the one to say, I just want to remind everyone he loved him some Nazis. And he, if he could have been one, he would. And, you know, so I'm always... Um, really, really let, let's let's talk about that really quick because Henry Ford is someone who, you know, if if you read, you know, I'm I'm very big into business. Like I re read a lot of books. I'm divest, you know, divested into you know a lot of, a lot of personal development, like Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, um, his Law of Success books. You know, going back to some you know other cliche and stereotypical ones, but Henry Ford is someone who's mentioned a lot in those earlier texts from like the 1920s and 30s as, you know, somebody who a lot of people study. So what is that background on that, if you don't mind going into that, because I've never heard this before. So that's kind of interesting to, to hear you bring that up. Oh yeah, Henry Ford authored a whole pamphlet um, about basically like the Jewish scourge. And he hmm. was given a special medal by the, by, um, you know, the Nazi regime and he admired Hitler and he basically, thought you know that you know that you know it's it's echoes of a certain recent in my opinion certain recent president of ours um enabling certain insurgent movements that had certain ideas about other people of other backgrounds um yeah. and, and henry ford of course never ran for president but he was probably the most influential person of his time right those were beliefs that he was not shy about and it did a lot i think it did a lot of damage to the public mm. perception about jews and the inclusiveness about jews as we started to get into World War II and there was some public reluctance about whether we should be the place for asylum for the Jews to come over and escape what was going on in Europe. So um, mm. all that is to say, I was giving you a hypothetical. It's not like I've ever had to really contend with this at my job or any job about like, right. don't do this article praising Henry Ford. It's just an illustration of where I might interject with something that mm -hmm. comes from a place of being proudly Jewish. And I think that that can have a large influence on like, for example, even going back to what we, we started off the interview talking about your movements right now, I imagine that, you know, getting the vaccines out, there's there's a lot of issues going on with helping underrepresented communities, um, you know, across the United States, having less access to, you know, the vaccine, less, less access to, you know, the necessities amidst the, the pandemic and all those things. So I can imagine that that coming from that and seeing that, you know, your grandparents and great grandparents had to go through all that persecution. And even then, you know, we don't talk about it, but we look into the media, there are a lot of things that I saw this viral tweet on Twitter the other day about um, these innate things about, you know, the Jewish community that these these negative, almost like anti-Semitic messages that are so ingrained where we almost brush them off like jokes. We don't realize what their actual messages and meanings are. And I think that goes to speak of being a little bit more cautious about what we study, the jokes we say, especially for the younger TikTok generation. You know, we don't half of them don't. I say we I'm not even in that a little bit older. Thankfully, I'm not in that TikTok generation uh -huh. right on the edge. Um, but you know, they, they don't know what they're, they're talking about. And I think that that goes to, to speak about how you're writing, being conscious about the messages and the things that you're writing about. Have there been any instances, like things that you've like written and 
like maybe maybe they were a little bit controversial or something, but you stood by what you were writing? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think over the years, I've probably written things that actually were, in retrospect, actually not as thoughtful as they sh as I would have liked to have been mm -hmm. um, about the way that I maybe just put certain things in context or perspective about other people's experiences that I knew nothing about, you know, mm -hmm. that I would, I would go back and do differently now and that you certainly would get flagged for now. It's, you know, as soon as, as soon as something was shared on social media, you know, so you right. have this kind of built in, uh, uh, <laughs> this built in kind of audit that, that goes on in real time. Uh, as far as whether there's something that uh, was, there was some, oh, well, you know, a weird example comes to mind that isn't exactly what you're talking about, but I think it does underscore maybe that just the idea of sticking to your guns, even if it's not something that is controversial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in 2006, I was working for a small weekly magazine in the city that was mostly distributed in sort of like doorman buildings in the Upper West Side and that kind of thing. And I, at the time, pitched a cover story on this then very new website called YouTube and wanted to make it really like colorful and really have the voices of the people who were uploading material to this site, all which were quirky people then, have the cover be a composite of screenshots of people's YouTube videos. Right. And my and again, nothing controversial about this, but I knew that that we were onto something and that we were gonna be, you know, ahead of the curve here and that it was really like it was really it felt like a really urgent thing. And my publishers were just furious and like, how are you gonna put out a cover about some stupid website with a bunch of kids putting up videos of their farts, you know, kind of thing. Like they feel like an idiot now. <laughs> I mean, I wonder, right? And no wonder I left that company after a few more months. But um, I, yeah, I think about that a lot. I wonder if they would ever acknowledge that to me now, even all these years later, because journalists have to hold grudges. It's sort of part of our job. Uh, but I, I stuck to my guns and they were furious. And lo and behold, I think, suffice it to say, even if that issue didn't you know, I, I had kids going, I had interns going and circulating it around like NYU and downtown, even if it didn't mm -hmm. saturate and no one remembers that that was sort of a, a first kind of planting the flag of this is this new thing that's gonna be big. Uh, I wasn't wrong and I'm glad I stuck to my guns. So I'm mm. sorry if that's a weird kind of tangent, but it was the first thing that came to mind somehow. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's what a lot of people are afraid of doing because they're afraid of criticism. And you of all people probably, can kind of now, now obviously your type of journalism isn't like news related for the most part when it comes to politics like you're not right sitting here and you're not a political reporter writing politics every single day of your life um but a lot of people are afraid of, of controversy in their beliefs they're they're afraid of having people look at them in the wrong way or all these you know we live in a society that's based around what is this person thinking of me and i think that sometimes we need to kind of take a step back and be like i don't care but i'm firm in my beliefs and i'm firm in what i'm standing for or i'm firm in what i'm pursuing and going after now you've had a a long long career and I'm, I'm 20 years old and so when i say like you're you've been doing this for pretty much longer than i've been alive what has been the key to longevity because obviously you've written for not just you know, it's one thing to write for a smaller magazine or a smaller thing, but you're writing for some of the top magazines in the world, um, at least in the United States. What has been the key to that longevity? Um, uh, lots of money under the table and lots of, no, <laughs> um, I, I had none of that. You hear nothing. <laughs> I've never had any of that to spare under, under or over. The honest answer is, I think I've been very able to be very um, adaptable 
Mm. I think I've been able to see trends coming and get out in front of them in turn, even if it's just a trend in the way that people are working. You know, <clears throat> I was not going to be left in the you know print graveyard as things were moving over to digital and I was going to see the writing on the wall and I was going to be able to teach my, you know, I, you know, I never imagined being able to functionally, you know, manage a website in my, in my life, you know, up to a certain point. But then I realized, oh, well, I better start figuring out how HTML works and how, how CMS platforms work. And I will just learn by doing, and then I right. will apply my germane sort of skill set and instincts to it, and it will all work out. So yeah, being a, being adaptable, being a, being a decent, more or less person, you know, about, you know, to the people that I've um, encountered over the years, I still have people in media that I've been working on stories with for literally 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. because we've just stayed in touch and never treated each other like a commodity. Right. Um, and we're never, never treated each other like uh, any, either of us or any of us were too good for the other's time. So, you know, being a mensch is sort of part of it. And, and being also, you know, having a, having a lane, you know, and mm -hmm. having something original to say in a way and knowing how to frame it and knowing how to, and being good helps if you, you got to recognize if you really actually have the, the chops, you know, and if you can really distinguish yourself from the pack. And, um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, um, um, I forgot what I was going to say. There was another thing. If I think of it, I'll mention it again, but I don't want to okay. dead air. Okay. Now I, I want to talk about, you know, you, you talk about relationships and I'm in the business of personal branding. And so I relate to a lot of what you're saying in the sense of being ahead of the curve because the entire world and internet is moving more and more towards personal branding and building out your name and building up your reputation and, you know, from there leveraging it to build a business or to build up a brand. Um, think about it like we're in, we're in this age of influencers. And so staying ahead of the curve, but this is where a lot of people go wrong is, um, I don't know how, you know, I don't, I don't think that you're super, super active on like Instagram or any of these pages, but these flashy buy my Shopify course entrepreneurs. Now this is a little bit out of, out of topic, but, um, they're all trying to get featured in Yahoo finance and paying their way into Forbes. And, um, even for a time they, they were paying, you know, trying to pay their way into entrepreneur and entrepreneur had to put their foot down and say like, yo, like we're not doing this anymore. And I would love for you to talk about that if you can. Um, and the one thing that I've noticed works is actually having genuine relationships with people and not trying to just like milk them because like that's that's what people try to do to others and so for anyone who's trying to get an actual interview what is like your number one word of advice when it comes to maybe getting into a publication or maybe getting into a, a magazine or a, a listing or an article because I know a lot of my listeners are business people who they see this flashy shiny object pay 200 bucks or pay a thousand dollars and get this article written mm. I think it helps if you are actually a good writer. <laughs> mm. um, if you're not, and this is speaking specifically to, to what you're talking about, where someone is running a business and trying to get some placement where they can seem like an authority leader kind of thing. You know, if you're not a great writer, it's worth maybe a little spend to get someone who can help you kind of copyright some stuff and copy edit some stuff. Um, I think it's important to know who you're pitching to and know what areas they've already sort of saturated and what areas maybe it looks like they have gaps that you can fill and provide a value mm -hmm. um, to their readers, maybe doing a little research about who their readers are, even if it's just cold reaching out to someone. 
at the publication saying like, I'm just curious, you know, what sort of your demographics are. Maybe there's a media kit you can send me just because I want to know more about your organization before I, you know, approach you with something that I think I can offer right. value. Just like you would do if you were almost a, a sales, uh, someone selling um, or someone looking into a potential ad buy rather or something like that. Mm. And, you know, be, make sure that you got all your ducks in a row when you're about to re reach out to that editor or whomever and know exactly get in get out you know be as can be as concise and compelling as you possibly can and um don't make it feel like it's a pressure campaign don't don't follow up every day if you're not hearing mm -hmm. right away from the person you know a phone call is okay but don't but if they don't answer you know same rule applies um and just be honest with yourself about whether you're trying to just serve yourself more than you're trying to actually sort of achieve something for everyone where everyone wins, where, you're, right. where that publication is going to get value and where you're going to be able to sort of prove that you're an, an important voice in the conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So actually like putting in the work and going back to being persistent, you know, just, just not giving up about that. Now, um, I don't know if you were really a part of this, but you know, what, what has entrepreneurs response been to a lot of these like smaller level entrepreneurs? And there's nothing wrong with being a small level. It's, it's another thing to actually stay there though. Um, Cause there has been this surge of people trying to get featured and have, you know, top 20 entrepreneurs on Instagram to follow, you know, and be next to Ty Lopez and Grant Cardone to increase their credibility. Now, you know, I am running a public relations firm, but that's not really my business model to where I'm doing that sort of work. And I have my own thoughts and opinions about trying to do that. Um, but has there been something that entrepreneur has done to kind of limit that or to make sure that the quality quality of, of work is still up to par with the magazine's brand and with the company's brand? I mean, it's a valid question. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to comment on it, to be perfectly honest, because okay. yeah. I'm not a company spokesperson. Um, I can tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, I can say that our editorial process for the website is pure and it is vetted and, um, and really, you know, we're just we actually do work very hard every day on you know on there being quality control and um, putting out stuff that we're eager or that we're you know that we're absolutely happy to sort of have our um, imprimatur <laughs> associated right. with. I know that sounds like I'm giving you just sort of like a stock line, but um, I wouldn't really say anything much different even off the record on it. But beyond that, I don't want to speak you know necessarily on the company's behalf. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I mean, if I have a question, I'm always going to ask it. And the worst sure. thing that happens is, you know, say, hey, I'm not able to talk about that. But, um, you know, I would eventually love to get, uh, I believe his name is Jason Pfeiffer, the the head of entrepreneur, or whatever. I'm connected with him on LinkedIn. I would love to have him on eventually, maybe go into detail a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, now, I've, I was looking over a list of, of some of the people that you've had the opportunity of, of interviewing and working with and writing articles about. Um you know, just to name a couple, Elijah Wood, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And so that name stood out above 50 Cent and Mary J. Blige. Um, <laughs> ha ha, you know, just to throw them out there too. Uh, and then Gene Wilder, you know, the, the original Willy Wonka. What was the experience working with Gene? Because I think that would be kind of an interesting thing to talk about. That's so funny. You're the second person who's, uh, who I've done like sort of a podcast with in recent weeks that specifically singled out Gene Wilder. People love that saw because he's, you know, because he is, he is Willy Wonka yeah. to a lot of people, of course, um, you know, he's Mel Brooks's muse for, for a stretch of time among, among other, you know, notable uh, accomplishments in his career. And it was interesting because I think I was one of the last 
sort of major interviews he did probably before he passed away. He was dealing mm. with some dementia. It was for Time Out New York. It was a sweet conversation. He was living in his home in Connecticut. Um, I forget who, I believe, you know, he was of course married to Gilda Radner and then she passed away. And I forget, I think he remarried to someone else. And I think she was sort of there in the background while I was talking to him, but maybe I'm making that up. Um, you know, it was, it was charming because he was happy to talk, but he was also, uh, you know, you know, if you went, if you went really, really sort of deep into certain obscure things from his career, you know, he may not even necessarily have had the instant recall for it, right. but it was, it was fun. It was a cool, I mean, that's a cool clip to have. And it was a cool conversation to have had. I grew up watching his movies and mm -hmm. uh, love that he was a, a quirky and affable kind of, you know, uh, role model in the, mm -hmm. <laughs> in the culture. Now I have never, I hate to say this, but I've actually never watched the original Willy Wonka all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces, <laughs> but it's just like, he's somebody who had a career and he's like, you know, my grandfather would always talk about him when I was growing up. And so, um, that's, that's really cool. Now, now also the nerdy side of me, the Lord of the Rings fanboy, how was it with Elijah Wood, you know, Frodo Baggins. Elijah's trilogy. great. Yeah. I, you know, the funny thing is, and maybe I think maybe he appreciated this when we talked, but I think ultimately, you know, they do so many interviews it kind of just all like glosses over at a certain right. point um we talked because he was starring in the fx show wilford at the time based on the australian mm -hmm. or new zealand one of the two series um aptly enough confusing those nations when he was in lord of the rings which was all set in new zealand so or filmed in new zealand so anyway i was not a lord of the rings guy never seen a single lord of the rings movie never never i'm ending the, the interview i'm hanging up I was kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> so many relationships have ended. I, I'm not much of it. I love Peter Jackson. There were two things happening for me when those came out. I'm not a big fantasy, epic fantasy guy. Mm. I'm just like a joyless realist. But the other one was that I fancied myself. Yeah, when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, I was a college age and I had fancied myself very cultivated. And I was a big fan of Peter Jackson's cult horror stuff that he had been putting out since, you know, the early eighties and on um, small budgets in New Zealand. And I sort of mm. resented that suddenly he was like the mainstream commodity and everyone was, you know, suddenly a Peter Jackson expert. So I think I just kind of like chafed at it. And I just was being a stupid angsty teen. Didn't, didn't go and see mm -hmm. the movies and I just never caught up with him. I don't know, but Elijah was great. Um, you know, really nerdy, cheery affable seeming guy intelligent um he did a very cool movie that came out last year or the year before it's on either amazon or netflix it's a it's a little indie horror thing that i really enjoyed i can't for the life of me remember it but it's one of the last handful of films that'll be in his imdb and any of those any of the last handful of films in his imdb are worth checking out because he's mostly doing just like weird little kind of boutique-y, I don't want to say art house -y, but just weird little small, strange movies. Right. Well, with his point in the career, he can pretty much do anything. I can only imagine the kind of royalties he's getting from uh, from Lord of the Rings in that series, but they have a lot of cool things going on. Now, mm -hmm. man, there, there's so many different things to talk about. Now, I noticed that you did this brief stint to where over the span of a couple of years where you focused on writing and a lot of things pertaining to music. And you mentioned that music was big growing up in New York and having the pop runk or pop Rock, um, rock, I don't even know what, what, what I said. Yeah, the pop rock or punk rock. Jesus Christ. You are um, losing all your punk cred right now. It's... I know. I, I'm. What was your favorite band? I got to ask. Well, my favorite band always was and still is. And I have a framed sign poster of them in their, in their glory out in my living room was always will be the clash. Um, 
but there was a very, very underground scene happening in, in New York and Long Island at the time that is that has some like lore to it now, you know, 25, 30 years mm -hmm. later. Uh, but there was it was a real, real niche scene or in a real like community within a community, a bit of an escape for <clears throat> excuse me, for us sub suburban and urban nerds who uh, didn't quite can fit in or want to conform. And, and it really um, introduced us to sort of a lot of political ideas. I was introduced to, you know, concepts of veganism and straight edge and um, protest and activism, you know, through my experience going to see punk and hardcore bands in mm, warehouses and basements and lofts and small shitty clubs and that kind of thing. Huh. So looking back on the, on those years, would you say that those were like pivotal, um, you know, like, like, did that have like an influence into your writing moving forward? Yeah, in fact, and I'm sorry, I keep clearing my throat. I rarely have a frog in my throat this way, but uh, <clears throat> it's like the Larry David. Right, Kermit. <laughs> so um, yes, absolutely. When I was in college, I, I either started to write and then just dropped it or mm -hmm. did eventually write a, um, a paper. I think my timeline on this is right. I think I was, yeah, I think I was a college senior around the time that Fugazi's documentary Instrument came out. I'm gonna totally do this thing where uh, it's, oh, 1999, yes. So I was in college when Fugazi's Instrument documentary came out and Fugazi and Minor Threat and Ian MacKay and their right. ethos and Discord records were a big influence on me, just sort of, you know, um, you know, just a DIY, you know, kind of, uh, you know, decidedly anti-authoritarian, anti-corporate kind of posture toward things. And I wanted to write a big thesis about the way that watching how they conducted their business and went about their lives and careers in this documentary made me want to be, how it, how it sort of helped define what I thought my political philosophy was basically. Mm. And, 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 you know, other things that are a little more sophisticated than that have continued to evolve mm -hmm. my my thinking and but those influences were also made an impression on those artists and early on in, in their careers and so it all comes full circle um, but I, I don't want to I'm, I was a music journalist for a long time I was the last editor-in-chief of, of a notable indie music uh, magazine called CMJ New Music Monthly and it was known a lot for its CMJ music marathon that took over the city every October. And, um, and then I was managing bands, some cool semi-notable indie bands around the turn of the 2010s. And then, uh, and then, I don't know. And then I was working at Spin Magazine for a bit and I just realized I was kind of burned out on music stuff and hmm. wanted to be, go back to being a jack of all trades because I love writing about politics. I love writing about sports. I love writing about you know, weird shit right. <laughs> and trends in general in the culture and television. I latched on big time to the explosion talking about being nimble, you know, around the early 2010s is when all, all of a sudden prestige TV was the thing and sites like the AV club were, you know, doing episodic recaps of shows. And I got in on that on the ground floor and started writing for them and vulture and all these places about TV. So I was, I went through all these stages. I was kind of a news journalist and early in my career, then I was a music journalist. Then I was a TV journalist. Now I'm a business journalist. And I, and, I, and in between that, I built a big body of work covering professional wrestling, which has always been a passion of mine. So 
you know, let's, that, let, let, let's go ahead and talk about professional wrestling though. Is it like, cause that's something I've never been able to get into. And I don't know if I've just never given it a chance, but um, I'm, I'm more of like, I would rather watch tennis than wrestling. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing to say. And you're probably like, man, okay, I'm, I'm, this is the point in the interview where I'm going to hang up and walk away. But what about <laughs> it? You know, what about wrestling really intrigues you or, or you know, interests you? Um, that is an excellent question and one I should be able to answer. It's difficult because every wrestling fan in their head before they answer that question, here's that little voice going, wrestling's so stupid. It's fake guys and fake outfits doing fake things. I just, for me, I've been obsessed with it since I was a kid. And I, I wrote about it at every opportunity I could early on in my career, you know, going into VFW locker rooms for, you know, at New York City, mm -hmm. indie promotions and that kind of thing. And then as I, and then later on, I eventually figured out a way to kind of write about it uh, at a larger scale for larger publications because of the relationships I had there, I kind of like dragged it in, dragged mm -hmm, those publications mm -hmm. kicking and screaming into covering wrestling. Uh, wrestling is, there's nothing quite like it. It is entertainment. It is athleticism. It is circus-like. It is violent. It is poetic. It is dramatic. It is soap operatic. Um, it is dumb, it is awe-inspiring, uh, it, it, it comes with its own kind of, you know, overly analyzed kind of uh, intra-industry tension and politics and gossip that kind of make it almost like more of a meta experience to be a wrestling fan now. Interesting. And as you probably know, even if you don't care about it, it's, it's everywhere right now in a way that we haven't seen in 20 years, and there's a reason for that, you know? So is it true that it is actually fake? Oh, yeah. To a degree? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, well, now, well let me... Hmm. <laughs> Already I'm getting a boo hiss from, from people who know me, you know, in that space. It's like I tell my son. My son is eight. He loves wrestling. My other son who's four also loves wrestling. But my son, my son who's eight is asking the tough questions about trying to parse, you know, what's real and what's fake. And I just say to him, say, use your eyes, you know? You get, I mean, you can tell that they're kind of portraying characters that are larger than life. You could tell that there's an entertainment value to this, that some of it is just kind of, you know, very much planned. Mm -hmm. And then you see for yourself that they're beating the crap out of each other. And right. there might be a there might be some artfulness to that and some sleight of hand to that, but I mean, it's not for sissies, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and these guys, uh, the admiration that wrestling fans have for the way that they have just sacrificed themselves on the altar of this business is, is, is interesting, but also, you know, we are allowed now to put a mirror back to wrestling like anyone, any fan of any, any industry does and say, we also want you to be better because you've been run by like weird crappy men from, for decades and you should be more mindful of protecting your talent and more inclusive of women and minorities. So it's, like any, like anything, it's it, wrestling and the wrestling business um, continue to just literally cre create their own narrative and then just have a bigger narrative around it that, that draws you in and makes it e even more enticing. Mm -hmm. Now, this question is a little bit for me um, more than anything, but how have you improved as a writer? Like what's, what's been like the, the practices that you have to maybe improve your writing style, your vocabulary? What, like what, what, what is the day in the life of Kenny Herzog when it comes to improving the craft? I know a lot of people say, you know, if you're going to be a writer, you got to read a lot. You got to read other writers. And I, I, you know, I read a lot of writing and it does it. And I do a lot of 
word puzzles and things that just continue to reinforce my vocabulary and reinforce my ability to kind of understand how to put things in proper context and or syntax or right. um, and I do I do love seeing the way I do love seeing other people's rhetorical flourishes but I try to um, I try to be fairly insular in a way when I you know about uh, just trusting my instincts about the way I like things to to sound and say so the things I've mm. done to improve really have more to do with just um, just my the, the the basic kind of good bones of being a journalist and um, and continuing to understand that it's okay to take criticism from your editor or from anyone it's okay to not be uh, so possessive over what you write it's a, that to always always any question if you're writing something and something gnawing at you like I don't know necessarily know the answer to this or know that this is true but I, it's fine. No, 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 it's not fine. Take a second. Like we talked about before being, putting in the effort and persistence, take a second and just authenticate whatever it is you need to authenticate or get the real answer, get it from the source. Mm -hmm. Cause those are the things that are going to differentiate you from everyone else. Cause most people don't do those things. Mm -hmm. So that's just continuing to demand a certain standard of quality and, and ethics and, um, and vigilance for myself and to impress that upon other people that I'm I surround myself with in my work and my life. And that's, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Why well, we say that, you know, a lot of people, they fail to get anywhere because they didn't make the decision to go all in with something, or they didn't make the decision to treat it like an actual business versus just a hobby or a passion project. And so a lot of what you're saying kind of, kind of goes to that of actually like, Hey, this is something I, I'm not only passionate about, but this is something that I'm treating serious and I'm going to, to act serious as well about it. And mm -hmm. so thank, thank you for that response. Now, who is your favorite journalist or author? Like somebody who you can't get enough of like reading their work. Mm. Sorry, it's a little, a little placement for polar stuff. I, um... <laughs> not sponsored. <laughs> <Just kidding> <laughs> no, it's a reasonable question. I really don't have a single person you know, as much as I'd love to say, like, uh, when I was reading Jimmy Breslin, the Daily News as a kid, and my father brought in the paper, I can't say that when I'd love when I, I mean, I could say that, I mean, you know, I like, like most children of my generation, I grew up reading a lot of Stephen King and things like mm -hmm. that, whether that influenced my imagination, my imaginativeness, I don't know, as a writer, as a reader today, I mostly just read the newspapers and journalism and, and stuff to keep me abreast of what's going on in the world. And I have sources I trust you know, and NPR, New York Times, Washpo, um, you know, you know, on, on, you know, local journalism, my God, you know, I would mm -hmm. shout out to the river newsroom here in New York state, um, in lo local, local, hyper-local journalism. But I, I don't have that one writer. I can't do like the New York times book review. Tell me the three writers you'd want yeah. with you or if living or dead at a dinner party, I'd be like, uh, you know, um, uh, See, I can't, I can't even, I don't, I don't have enough of a list in mind to even come mm -hmm. up with like what my fake alternates would be. Right. So that's a really crappy answer. I apologize. No, no, no. I love, I love that because that just shows that you are somebody who can enjoy a bunch of different pieces of information and it just kind of the chaos of, of reading all of this kind of ma just makes sense to you. Um, now, now you talk about, you know, reliable sources and you as a writer, you obviously have to make sure that the information you're providing in articles and stuff is accurate and correct and true, you know, to, to uphold, you know, the ethics and moral and, and standard of and quality of your writing. Now, how do you determine what 
is true and like how to verify that that information is actually factual, especially in terms of, you know, there, there's everything you mentioned briefly about previous presidents and fake news and all this other stuff. Like, how do you verify what information is true versus what information is coming from a, a biased standpoint that is actually fabricated? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's I kind of find it to be a fun challenge. It's like going on an archaeological archaeological dig for the truth, you know. See that? I, okay. You know, you have to. I mean, I'm, I mean, it, you know, that's silly, but but it's true. I I love to get down to the nub of something, the germ of something, and that's what you have to be have to do to be a good, you know, journalist, but also a good, I think, conscientious citizen and member of a community and. Um, part of any dialogue, you know, no one, no one benefits from anyone spreading misinformation or speculation and passing mm -hmm, it off mm -hmm. as, as fact or as authority. So I don't know it all. I'm humbled by the fact that I don't know it all. So that's why I love being in journalism is because you get to seek out answers to things you don't know. So for example, if somebody, I, I hate to do, um, there's an example that comes to mind where, um, well, I'm not going to actually. I'm not going to bring that example because it may, it might uh, make a coworker feel like I was, you know, being anecdotal of them without without their consent. So, if you read something somewhere that says, "Oh, um, I don't know how do I, get, I? I can't figure out the best example." It, it's a great question and it's an important question and the and I should have the answer at my fingertips. It's just about, um, it's just, it's, it's about, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be super specific. All right, I'll be specific. So a coworker of mine attributed something that a White House spokesperson said to a CBS news report of that person saying it. And, you know, I just did a quick search and realized, you know, well, she did say that, but we don't have to make a secondary attribution to CBS news because it's right here on whitehouse.gov in the actual like transcript of the press briefing that happened that day. Mm. We can just directly sort of source it back to that. So that's not parsing fact from fiction. That's just sort of as far as you know, getting something straight from the source and not having to kind of offload your expertise to someone else or, or some other journalist. And then just, just everyone, everyone knows when they come across a piece of information that doesn't feel credible. And it's a mm -hmm. matter of want of having the actual, the actual temerity to say, I need to just make sure that that's right, whether it's just for my peace of mind or because it's something I'm gonna pass on to somebody else over dinner or because it's something I'm gonna put on Facebook. And it's there are pretty easy ways to do that. You don't even have to go to Snopes. You could do your own Snopes investigating. If somebody says the sky is blue, go onto NASA's website and read their uh, you know, FAQ about like the nature of the pigment of the sky and why you know i mean that's what i'm talking about there are official sources for things and when you start to get into doubting official sources then you're getting into some other conspiratorial realm that um absolutely so terrible answer terrible answer to your question no i think i'm just asking the right questions this is this is good too because this is a learning experience for me too because i'm relatively new when it comes to interviewing people like i've done maybe a total of 10 interviews where I'm the one asking the questions. And so this is a constant learning experience on my end. Um, now, now you're, you talk a lot actually without, I think, realizing it about instinct. 
you, you mentioned instinct a lot without even directly saying the word instinct, trusting yeah. your gut, viewing it with your eyes, writing what you think about, like just off the top of your head, like just having that instinct that a lot of people I think try to run away from because they don't realize that it's actually there to serve them versus harm them. Right. Um, now, I, I do know that we're, we're approaching the one hour mark here in a couple of minutes. And I want to ask you a question. Now, you've, you've had the opportunity to interview, you know, a good amount of people and a lot of people have in your website saying more famous than myself and more famous than you, which was hilarious in the way that you wrote, <laughs> wrote that. Now, being around all of these arguably ultra successful people, at least in the, in the fields of entertainment and, you know, Hollywood, has there been a characteristic about the people that you've interviewed that has kind of been cohesive across every single person that you've talked to pertaining to their success? Or is there like something that stands out with the people that you've talked to? You know, it's funny because on the one hand, you're just going based on what they tell you and what they tell you could be crafted or curated and or what they want to believe about themselves so you so all things being equal assuming that they're they're being sincere mm -hmm. i suppose they've all been pretty determined people um they've all been you know because i well i've talked to some people who were assigned to me to talk to who i just didn't come out of the conversation with more respect for than i came in with okay but at this point in my career i mostly am talking to people that i would that i choose that I seek out. And typically, um, they are, yeah, super, super unwilling to settle, uh, potentially insecure, uh, and would probably admit it in most cases, um, definitely have a competitive streak, and have self-belief, and have been through, um, I think, have been through stuff that, um, that has tested their resolve and sort of sort of sharpen their focus in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And of course, most of them incredibly, uh, you know, vain and self-involved and, um, and that side of things. Yeah. All of the that. ego. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Now I think people, a lot of people say that um, email is a dying thing. And I, I don't know if I necessarily see that. How do you contact these people? Now you have your Rolodex of people that you're associated with. And over the years, I imagine you've built up some really amazing contacts with talent managers and that sort of thing. Do you, do you just like cold email a lot of these people with their contacts or how, what, like what's the most effective way of you getting in contact with these people? I mean, some people come to you and that's always nice, but for them, you know, and there are a lot of people who certainly have um, there, the information about you know who their publicity firm might be is readily available. You know if you do some research, but then there's some real kind of shoe leather stuff that you got to do sometimes. I remember I was writing a story several years ago about the cast of the original Twin Peaks when it was announced that they were going to be doing a, 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 a second series that eventually aired on Showtime a few years later, and that involved, for in one instance finding some, a cast member's information through a community theater website in Oregon that she was a major sort of like benefactor for and calling that place and then giving me her home phone number. And then when talking to her, I think it was talking to her, but it was something like this. Then she giving me information on another older castmate that was living in a nursing home and me looking up that nursing home and calling the front desk and just asking for the guy and then patching me through to directly to his room. Wow. And me saying, Warren Frost? father of co-creator Mark Frost and and uh, and career sort of character actor and and him saying yeah who's this and then we you know we talked a little while and then he and then he passed away sadly not long after but it may, it goes to show you you know you got to get these opportunities when you can you know if you can right um, to be able to tell people stories because that's the fun thing about being a journalist 
telling people stories. And back to the fact checking thing, that's the stuff you got to do too. You got to be willing to pick up the phone. Can't you? Mm. Email's not outmoded. Email is, is actually like a fairly, now people think they can just DM somebody or this or that. Um, email is still very effective. But if you're trying to say, if you're trying to figure out, wait, is that person really from New Guinea? And were they really the uh, one of six sons of that of that person? Well, if you have the ability to, just find a way to ask them directly. Just call, you know, if you figure out a way to get a hold of them and, and ask them yourself. You know, there's always, even if you're, if you're a public figure or a private figure, you don't have to be a professional sleuth to figure out some way to get a hold of somebody between mm -hmm. people's unfortunately personal information being out there in the world and, and everyone having personal websites and social media and that might link you to somebody's management or somebody's book publisher you know there's there's yeah. easy ways to do it you just have to want to try and you have to care about what you're putting out in the world being good information mm -hmm. now kenny not only has this been extremely valuable there there are a lot of things that we talked about that i think people get value from but this has also been comical and yeah. extremely enjoyable and I, I appreciate you taking the time again now now where can people find you where can people support you and read your work well my address is um <laughs> speaking I, about I, personal information <laughs> i was just i was just wishing i knew the uh, the house number of, of nancy's house in nightmare in elm street 15 elm street so you could find me on twitter where i'm entirely too active at kenny herzog um you can you know, I mean, I'm on all the basic socials, but only, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, I sometimes have a wrestling podcast through MLW Radio Network, but I've been on a break from it for a while because I've been dealing with all this kind of other side stuff. And in general, you can always just reach out to me, you know, go to my website, KennyHerzog.com, Google me, get me on Twitter if you want to reach out and make contact in any way, shape or form. And I appreciate you giving me you know, the platform to uh, just kind of talk about me, which is always anyone's dream. Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you again for listening to this episode. Be on a lookout for a brand new interview every single Friday with people from all walks of life and all different fields. And uh, make sure you go listen to this again, take notes and, and go ahead and show your support for Kenny. Uh, Kenny, brother, thank you again. And Catch you guys later. Yes, and I want to add, I'm really always willing to help other journalists who are just looking to, to have a peer and, and someone who's there to give some some guidance. So don't just put okay. that out there. You open for new podcast interviews from other people? Because I do have some podcast people who are listening. I will, I will absolutely promote my personal brand. Anytime. There we go. We're going to have to talk about that off air because I noticed some things about your personal brand that can be strengthened, leveling I, up. I appreciate it. <laughs>